scripture reading for this morning is from Isaiah 45, found on page 606 of the Church Bible. Isaiah 45, verses 14 to 25. Hear now God's word. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly, you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens. He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. This is God's word. Do keep your Bibles open then at Isaiah 45 and this great statement of the uniqueness of the God of Israel in his redeeming work. And in this passage we've read together are events far in the future for Isaiah as he writes to the people of his day, and indeed far into our future as we sit here this morning. And the question, of course, is why should I believe, why should I believe God's word today? Why should I take God seriously? The Bible is full of great and precious promises, as Peter says, why should I believe them? The Bible's answer to that is to point to the character of God and in particular to God's faithfulness to his word. Let me put it in its context. If you look at the first word of this section we've just read, it's the word thus. 
flowing from what has just been said. At the end of that section, you'll notice that he's referring to the person he referred to at the beginning, a man called Cyrus. And God is making this prediction that this man, Cyrus, who would not be around for another 150 years plus from Isaiah's day, this man, Cyrus, would build God's city, set God's people, the exiles, free. And he'll do it for no price or reward. He'll only do it, he'll do it because God appointed him to do it, even though the man himself will not be aware of that appointment. He'll do it unconsciously, but nonetheless, he will work out the plan of God in history. And what, what the prophet does is he builds on that prophecy, just as he's been doing right throughout this book. Early on in the book, you had little Judah afraid of an amalgamation of northern Israel, the ten tribes, plus Syria, who were worrying at their borders. And the people in Jerusalem, especially the king, was terrified that this combination of Israel and Syria would come down, would attack Judah and attack Jerusalem. Isaiah said, they won't do it. They won't do it because somebody you haven't heard of yet the Assyrians who are just getting their act together there up to the northeast, they're going to come and they're going to break in, they're going to defeat Syria, and they're going to absolutely annihilate the ten tribes, scatter them so that they no longer exist as a coherent nation at all. Isaiah said that. He had it put and written down. He had it notarized. He had it put in the public records office so that everybody knew he'd said it so that in a couple of years' time when it happened, they knew the prophet, the Word of God, was true. A little later on, as they're complaining and, and they're, they're trying to uh, build a, a relationship with the Egyptians, God comes through Isaiah and says to them, listen, I told you, remember I told you the Assyrians would not, uh, or, or rather that Israel and, and Syria were not going to invade. I didn't tell you the Assyrians are going to invade. They're terrified of this new power that's on the block, and they're building up their forces. They will invade you, but they will not get as far as Jerusalem. They will never take the city. In fact, something remarkable, remarkable is going to happen. Just as you think they're about to pounce, God will frustrate them, and they will just drop everything and run away. Well, of course, people didn't believe. But whether you believed or not, that's what actually happened. So Assyrian power grew, and then that power was toppled by the Babylonians. And it was Isaiah who said, the Babylonians, you never heard of them. They've not been around here. They're, they're just a little power out there out east of us. They're going to rise and they're going to defeat the Assyrians, but this time they're not going to stop. They're going to come down sweeping into Judea. All your fields will be burned, the crops destroyed, your city will be captured, the walls decimated, the temple obliterated, the people exiled to Babylon. God's going to do that. They had to wait a long time. Isaiah was probably dead by the time that happened, but his word was authenticated by the action of God. And now God's giving him the final piece of the puzzle. His promises were that out of Jerusalem, the Messiah would make his reign 
throughout the whole world as people came to know the living God through from Jerusalem as the base. People reading that thought, well, Isaiah got that wrong. There isn't any Jerusalem. And as for a son of David occupying a throne, there is no nation. We're exiles in a foreign land, 500 miles away. However, are we going to get back there? I mean, here we are under the Babylonian authority. Here we are in this stronghold. We are virtual prisoners here. How are we ever going to get back to Jerusalem? Isaiah gives them the message 150 years before this man is even on the block. That Cyrus, he gives them his name, Cyrus, from Persia. You never heard of Persia? It's nothing right now, but it's going to be big in the future. Persia is going to grow great, and it's going to overwhelm Babylon. And the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus. Keep that in mind so that when he comes on the block, you know that the God of Israel told you not only that there was going to be a Persian, but his name was Cyrus. And all of that, you see, is part of this buildup of evidences that so convinced the Jews who had toyed for nearly for 1,600 years, toyed with both the God of Israel plus the gods of the nations round about. It was that evidence which, at the end of the day, convinced them once and for all to abandon all idolatry and to believe that God was the only God there is. Now, it's against that background of this prophecy that we have this great statement of the Lord, the only Savior. That's, that's where he's taking us here. And he's saying that in the providence of God, God is going to keep all his promises. Now, of course, if you were living back then, you would think that uh, the reason that Babylon fell was that Babylon had been a big empire for a long time, internal rot in the institutions had made it weak, and so when a new empire rises, it invariably takes over where the old empire used to thrive. But God's Word is telling you that that may be happened in terms of the circumstances, but God is telling them ahead of time that is what's going to happen. It's like the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem. The Bible is very clear. Micah tells you which Bethlehem. There were a couple of Bethlehems in the region, so it tells you specifically. Not Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where Jesus was born. No, at least that's the, that's the, that's the line that they tell you. you. You should go there at Christmas and uh, visit, visit the market and so on and see where Jesus was born. No, Micah said he's not going to be born in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania or Bethlehem, down the road, he's going to be born in Bethlehem in Judea, so that you know that's the one in which the Messiah will be born. Well, all of that prediction, all of that fulfillment is meant to encourage us about the faithfulness of God. In the language of Numbers 23, has he said it and will he not do it? The God who has said will do. And that prediction about uh, Cyrus being fulfilled to the letter as it was is meant to feed our faith 
That's why in verse 9 of 45, in verse 9, there's a rebuke to those who don't believe the revealed truth of God. Well, when we come to verse 14, God is addressing His people, His own people. They're described as one. They're the singular, feminine singular pronoun is used when he's referring to you, you as a corporate body, you as the people of God, you as God's own bride, as it were, who have been scattered by your enemies, are destined to return. And here is, here is God's promise to the believing remnant of His people. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, quote, the wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. Like subject nations bringing their tribute to a superpower, the Gentiles as a whole will bring their wealth and their persons and lay them at the feet of God's people. Like the Magi at Christmas time who come to visit Jesus bringing their magnificent gifts, these people here re represent everything that is remote and exotic uh, and uh, cultured and rich and oppressive. They represent the world beyond the borders of Palestine, and they are described as coming and almost surrendering, uh, submitting themselves to the people of God to become part of the people of God. And I want you to notice that this is not a military defeat. This is a spiritual work that is done in these people. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other. That is the real point of the passage. These people who were pagans, who are Gentiles, who are distant from the God of Israel, who do not know the God of Israel, will be coming on that day. They will come and they will seek to find the word of truth that brings them eternal life. And the fulfillment of this chapter and is still working its way out in the history of the world. You think uh, in the early days of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. You think of the people who were brought to faith under the preaching of the apostles. You look at the early period of the church and you see how Christianity dominates northern Africa right down to Ethiopia and right up to the to the, to the borders of Russia. Christianity dominates in that period well within 50 years or so of uh, 50 to 100 years or so after the death of the apostles. It's pushing its way into those regions and eventually will dominate for a long time. Great church leaders like Augustine from North Africa uh, come to lead the church. Well, here's the description. The description is that Gentiles will follow you. That is, they'll come to worship with you. They'll, they'll follow you into church. They'll follow you to the temple. They'll follow you in the solemn ceremonies of religion. They'll bow down in, in deference to the church of God. They will be yours, he says. That is, they'll belong to you. They'll be part of you. They will share your life together as the people of God. They will plead he says, to be part of what God is doing among you. They will join the church. They will join the body of believers in unequivocally confessing the absolute sole deity of the Lord. Surely God is in you and 
there is no other God besides Him. In our New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 reflects on this prophecy and says it's happening in their assemblies as the people of God gathered in churches there in the first century. He says this, that when you're together and someone, an outsider or a believer, enters, he'll be convicted. They'll be called to account. The secrets of their heart will be disclosed. They'll fall on their face. They'll worship God. They'll declare that God is really among you. God is among this people. They'll believe in God as their only Savior. In verses 15 to 17, Isaiah writes the book on the audacity of God. The covenant God of Israel is the one who is the Savior and who gives His salvation to His people in the world. Now, I want you to notice in verse 15 that the idea that God would use a pagan, idol-worshipping Persian emperor to enable the church of God to go back to Jerusalem and to serve Him there, the idea that God would use such a person is mind-blowing. It is it raises issues in our, in our minds. How can God do this? Similarly, in our everyday life, as we read the papers and watch the television and we see the news and we see things happening in the world that unsettle us and disturb us, we're asking ourselves all the, quest, all the time the question, where is God? Where is God? Why doesn't God do something? How can God stand idly by while all these bad things are happening to good people in His world? He is a God who hides Himself. Sometimes He hides Himself as if there is no God. That's the experience of God's people. Maybe it's your experience this morning. People who were around, if the media were reporting on what happened to Jer Jerusalem and Judea, they would report, they would show pictures of burned fields, they would show pictures of broken down houses of a temple obliterated, all its gold and all its religious artifacts taken away. It would show you pictures of a streaming mass of humanity leaving Jerusalem, trudging along a road accompanied by armed guards, taking them 500 miles away to Babylon. Where is God? And where is God when it is a pagan emperor who steps in to make it possible for them to return. And when they return, the infrastructure all gone, no national institutions, everything destroyed, nothing will grow. And they have to start all over again, humbled, humiliated, with nothing. Where is God? Somebody recently, I, I noticed it on Facebook, was saying about these people who are being killed by ISIS in the Middle East. They said, these people, these people are useless people. They're Look at them. There's, they're failures. Their religion has failed them. Their stand has failed them. There they are suffering because they are failures. That's the world's point of view, you see. The world's point of view is it loves a success story. And God's ways often seem hidden to us. 
Now, the Apostle Paul reflects on this when he's thinking about the way in which the world comes to know the only true God. Uh, he talks in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he, he says there that unaided human wisdom cannot find or know God. Unaided human wisdom cannot find or know God. L let me read it to you. He says this, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So here he says it's the mystery. In the wisdom of God, the world, that is people, the culture, the folks you mix with, the people you study with, the people who are teaching you, the people you're teaching, these people, it says, do not know God through wisdom. The very thing that gets them on in the world, the very thing that gets you credit, the thing that gets you academic achievement, the thing that gets you noticed, the thing that gets you a job, the thing that makes you important in the eyes of the world, that thing, wisdom, does not lead you to God, Paul says. Instead, he goes on to say, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. That's God's way. His way is not our way. It's mysterious to us, hidden to us. Why is it that the brighter you are, the sooner you see the Christian message. Why is it that not, that doesn't happen? Here's the answer of the Bible. It pleased God through the foolishness of preaching and of what we preach to save those who believe. Or what about the church? We want, don't we, we want the brightest and best people in our culture to be the, the showpieces for the church. I remember going with my two of my daughters to a church in London called Hillsong. And uh, we just want to check it out. Uh, having checked it out, I, I don't recommend it to my puppy. But, um, <laughs> but it was obvious there that they had this idea that really what the world needed to see were the most beautiful people you could possibly imagine. There were huge big screens and there were people standing on the stage who were singing and so on. And I have honestly, I can honestly say that in my whole life, I've never seen such beautiful people anywhere. And when there were interviews for the offering, the, which took about 25 minutes before we actually gave the offering, but while we're hearing these wonderful testimonies, it was the most beautiful people you could imagine. And what was being projected is, we want you to join us. You know, just don't look in the mirror. We want you to join us and be one of the beautiful people. But the reality is that isn't the way God works. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again, he says, consider your calling brothers, not many of you. Fortunately, not, not, not any of you, but not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards, and not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. Selina, the Countess of Huntington, a friend of George Whitfield's and uh, other evangelical believers, she said, it's, I, I'm so grateful that Paul did not say not any of noble birth, not many of noble birth, not uh, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose the, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why did he do that? He did it so that no human being could boast
He treats us, puts us all on level ground. That's, that's an amazing thing. God's ways are not our ways. He hides himself. When I was growing up, we used to sing a hymn by Frederick Faber. He hides himself so wondrously as though there were no God. He is least seen when all the powers of ill are most abroad. Thrice blessed is he to whom is given the instinct that can tell that God is on the field when he is most invisible. The hiddenness of God is a reality, but it's not the whole story. The hidden things belong to the Lord our God, the Bible says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So he addresses the issue that's facing believers, the hiddenness of God, and he reassures them, verse 16, that all of them, that is the world, the people who reject God, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. These people do not have God in their midst. They do not know God. And so their destiny is shame and confusion. They will be confounded in that final day. But God's people must not despair, verse 17. First word in the sentence is Israel. And here he's not thinking about ethnic Israel because ethnic Israel, Israel the nation, was a mixture of believers and unbelievers, idolaters and those who were monotheistic. Here he's thinking specifically of believing Israel, Israel in a spiritual sense, those who know the Lord. Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity, he says. Here is God's promise to his believing people, that they shall not be ashamed or confounded. Nothing will happen that will take away from their, face, from their faith. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Many, of course, in Israel wouldn't believe this, but here is God's purpose. Those believers, small though they may be, a remnant though they may be. These are the real people whom God is using in the world. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Paul said, the saints will judge the world. God will overturn the conventional wisdom of the world. This believing, this believing remnant within the people of God, the church within the church, the yeast in the flour, and the treasure hidden in the field, those people that church within the church, the people of God, those are the people who will be saved to all eternity, the text says. Hallelujah. It's an everlasting salvation. You're not saved one day and lost the next. It is an everlasting salvation that is permanent, that is real, and it is grounded on the faithful promise of God. That's why the Apostle Paul, for example, can list in Corinthians his trials and his troubles, his sufferings and his pains, and he can say that in spite of all the humiliations he's been through for the gospel, he goes on because Christ is there by his side, 
and Christ will rescue him, ultimately rescue him from all his trials and deliver him safely into his eternal kingdom. You see, what we're being taught here is that for all men and women, believers and unbelievers, it is with God that we have to do. Isaiah would have agreed with John Calvin as he was going through the throes of making a tough decision, and he wrote to William Farrell, the pastor in Geneva, and he said, I am well aware that it is with God that I have to do. At the end of the day, that's the issue. It's that that determines whether on that final day of judgment, you and I will be put to shame and confounded, or you and I will stand aware that we have an everlasting salvation to all eternity. Are you sure of that? Now, this great promise of God is grounded, do you notice, verse 18, on His total authority as the creator of the world. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, brackets, He is God, close brackets, who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Four different words. He created, formed, made, established. Everything. He made it for whom? He made it for people. Humans are the pinnacle of creation. He created the cosmos for human habitation. And because He is the Creator, His purposes, His revealed will provide the normative explanation of existence. There's God, and there's everything else. And everything else derives from the Creator. Everything else derives from the Creator. There is nothing in everything else, the stuff of the universe, nothing there that stands alone, that is sufficient of itself, that has any independent existence apart from the Creator. That's the fundamental foundation for God's purpose. And He's not only the Creator, but He's the Revealer. He reveals Himself to His people, verse 19. He says says this, you you, you can know this. You can know this for sure. You can know this for absolute certainty. Some of my ways are hidden, yes. There's often much that I do that's disguised from view that you cannot explain, that you can't put your finger on, but that's no excuse for you not knowing me. There is a knowledge you can have that's been revealed. I did not speak in secret. You don't have to find some spiritist somewhere, some occult practitioner or magician somewhere who's been hiding in some underground cave, having, going through some religious ritual and trying to find the mind of the maker. You don't need to do that. This is a, what I've done is revealed myself publicly. I, I, have, I did not speak in secret. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. God is a speaking God. He has spoken by the prophets. What He has spoken has been written. We find it in our hands, this very Scripture that we have in our hands. This is the very Word of God. And God, who at the one, is the one who keeps Himself hidden on the one hand, is the one who also 
openly declares his truth. I mean, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. We could not comprehend the infinite God. We could not get our minds around that. Even though God is light in himself, yet yet we would be in darkness. We would not be able to comprehend that in ourselves. So God reveals himself. And he comes. He comes as one whom dark clouds surround because his glory is beyond our capacity to comprehend. But that does not mean he's unknowable. He delights to disclose himself. He reveals the deep and hidden things, Daniel tells us in Daniel 2. And supremely, he makes his glory known in Christ, in person, in skin and bone, so that the apostles could say, we have seen his glory. And Jesus could say, I've manifested your name to those that you have given me out of the world. And that revelation we have in Scripture and that we have in Christ is true, accurate, sufficient knowledge of God. But you say it's not exhaustive, it's not absolute, there's more. Yes, there's more. You're just not told more, okay? You deal with what's been made known. That's enough for a lifetime. I came across this week some handwritten notes of talks that I gave when I was just a a boy. And apparently by the time I was 15, I was on number 64, sermon number 64. It's really weird. It's really weird reading them because of that absolutely garbage. But I mean, they they were fine. So you, I, I spend a, what have I done? All my life I've been studying the Bible. And what I'm able to tell you today is I'm not done yet. There's more. There's more. There's more. Every time I go to it, there's more. It is rich beyond your wildest imagination. I don't have time in my, in my life to tell you all the things I do know from the Bible. And I'm just me. There's people who are brilliant who've been in the Bible all their lives and they don't have time to tell you all that they know. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have more days before us to sing His praise and more to learn of Him than when we first began. God is an inexhaustible source of knowledge to His people. And so this God... Verse 20, gives a word through the prophet to people well beyond Isaiah's day, whose lives will be disrupted by the arrival of King Cyrus. People living in Babylon who are worshiping their own gods, having to face up to the reality that even their gods, they thought were all powerful because everything before them fell and they were triumphant. Now they are falling. Now they are broken. And they're running away, these survivors of the nations who go around carrying their wooden idols and keep on praying to their God, a God that cannot save. God addresses these people. God addresses these future refugees. He says, I want you to stop and think for a moment. I want you to declare and present your case. I want you to take counsel together, all of you, you nations that were overwhelmed by the Babylonians and now are overwhelmed by the Persians. Stop, think for a moment. Take counsel together. 
What did your gods tell you about the future? What did they warn you about, about the future? Did any of them say anything to you about the future? Did any of them tell you anything that has come true about the future? Now think about this. These pitiful little Jews, nobodies in the world stage, read their Scripture, and you will find in their Scripture a God who accurately, 100%, told them what was going to unfold in history. And you decide which God is God. There's the issue. Look what he says to them. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none besides me? Think about it for a moment. I'm asking you to think about it for a moment. The God of the Bible prophesied where Jesus would be born 800 years before he was born then. That he would be born of a virgin. 800 years before he was born of a virgin. The psalmist talked about him dying and rising again. Isaiah predicted that he would be a suffering servant, that he would be despised by his own people, that he would be put to death. David in the psalm even said he would be pierced in his hands and his feet. Hundreds, a thousand years before he came into the world. You, I mean, there is this weight of evidence for the reliability of the promises of God. Now get that into your head for a moment and hear what God says to you now. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Yeah. Do you see what he's saying? Here's a big surprise. We might have expected zapping or even a warning of a zapping. But no, what do we get? We get a call to salvation. We get an offer of mercy. Turn. That means repent, turn around. Stop serving your idols, serve the living and true God. Paul explained it in those terms in First Thessalonians when people were converted in the, in the Greco-Roman town of Thessalonica. They were converted and uh, Paul says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's what you have to do. I have to do today. And what, is it, what happens when I do that? Well, I find a Savior. How can I be sure that there's a Savior? Look at verse 23, because God puts His Word behind it. The very Word that He spoke that came true for these other things is going to come true for this. By myself, I have sworn... I once had to go to court and give evidence, and I'd put my hand on a Bible in those days, about 150 years ago when they had them in court. I'd put my hand on the Bible and put my other hand up and say, I swear before Almighty God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Who does God swear by? God swears by Himself. I myself have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that will not return. Get that into your sworn mouth word. Gone out will not return. God will keep his word to you. I want to say this to you today. Turn 
to me and be saved. Here is God speaking to you, you, as you sit in this room today. Turn to me and be saved. Who should turn? Everybody. Just white people? Just black people? People from Western world, the Eastern world, the North, the South? Which people? All people, all the nations of the world. Who is to turn? You. Turn to me and be saved, God says. He is pleading with you. He's calling to you. He's urging you to consider the reality of what he has on offer. Because there is coming a day, by the way, this is a context, when this speaker says, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. There's coming a day when everybody is going to have to face the speaker of these words. Uh, notice what he's looking for. He's looking for worship and confession. The knees bowing is worship. The tongue speaking is confession. Worship and confession. This speaker is the one who will judge the world, and he's the only one who can save the world. And in our New Testament, look from the resurrection of Jesus, Paul draws this conclusion. He takes us back to these very words, and he says, the speaker in Isaiah 45 is God, the God of Israel, is the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, who is the only Savior, before whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I tell you this? There's coming a day when absolutely everybody will worship Jesus Christ. And absolutely everybody will confess that He is the Lord God of Israel. Everybody. They will do that either by faith or by force. They will do it with joy. Why? Because they believe in Him today. They trust Him today. They worship Him and confess Him now. If you worship and confess Him now, that day is going to be a great day of celebration. But on that day when He reveals Himself to every human being, everybody else will still worship Him and will still confess Him, but they will do so out of the awful realization that throughout their lives they suppressed the knowledge of this one. They held it down in their unrighteousness. And for them that day will be a day of terror as they're swept into hell. This is not that day. No, this is the day in which it is said of the Lord, verse 24, that in Him are righteousness, righteousnesses, plural, all the righteousness that you need and strength. And in the Lord all the offspring of Israel, that is everybody who believes what Israel believed, that is the believing Israel believed, 
John chapter 12 explains what believing Israel has to believe. It has to believe that Jesus is their Messiah. The offspring of Israel, that's Gentiles, who have come to believe what Israel, the believing Israel believes, the apostolic teaching, shall be justified, declared righteous, put in the right relationship with God, and shall glory, that is in victory, shall be vindicated before a watching world. That's what happens when you hear the call, turn to me and be saved, and you do it. Justified. Glorified. So here's this good news this morning. The God who did all that stuff in history to demonstrate to the Jews and to us that He is the only God there is comes to you this morning in this room and through a living voice speaks His words again in your living ear. Says to you, turn to me and be saved. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Will you turn to Him? Will you, will you give heed he, he to Him? Will you put your faith in Him? Will you confess with your mouth now that Jesus is Lord? And believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. If so, you will be saved from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word and make it live in our hearts and hasten the day, we pray, when Jesus shall come in all his glory to wind up human history and to bring his people home. In his strong name we pray. Amen.